I want you to imagine that you were a believing Christian living in Germany during World War II, and you had Jewish neighbors, and you chose to hide them in your house, and one day you heard some Nazi officials knocking at your door. And you open the door, and they ask you, we've suspected that some Jewish people have been hidden by their neighbors here. Are you hiding any Jews? What's your response? What are you going to say? Are you going to give them away? Yeah, they're under the floorboards. Or are you going to defame a holy God and break his holy word and bear false witness? What is a Christian to do? This has kind of become the classic ethical dilemma post-World War II. Right? The, the classic one before that was, would you steal bread to feed your hungry family? And now it's, would you lie in order to save the Jewish people? But you know what? We are faced with less extreme examples of this all the time. For example, is it a sin, is it a lie for a, a new business, a, a business that's just started, can't afford a security system yet? But to try to deter thieves, they put a sign up that says, smile, you're on camera, or you are being recorded. Is that a lie? Is that sinful? What about in a similar situation? Some people have put, to deter thieves from entering their homes, they have put a sign on their door, beware of dog. Maybe they don't have a dog, or maybe they have a chihuahua. Beware of dog. Is that sinful? Is it lying for an undercover cop to tell criminals he's a drug dealer? Is that a lie? Is that a sin? Is it sinful for the military to wear camouflage? Because what are we trying to do with that? I'm trying to deceive my enemy. I'm trying to communicate to you, hey, I'm not a guy with a gun. I'm a bush. We all know lying is a sin. Yet, in the fallen world we live in, sometimes it's difficult to know in every single scenario, is this deception that I am tempted to engage in, is this wrong? In other words, I'm asking the question, is it always wrong to tell a lie? Is it always wrong to intentionally deceive somebody? Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we will read verses 1 through 5 together. Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to... Or I'm sorry, did I say 15? <laughs> I meant 16. My, uh, I've been having technical issues all morning, and they started up again, and so my brain got a little flustered and distracted there. I apologize. I may have to do this without notes, but I won't do it without the timer. 1 Samuel 16, I apologize. 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 5. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to sacrifice. So, Elder Jesse has been kind enough to preach for the last three weeks uh, as I've been on paternity leave. And he had a fourth sermon that he wanted to preach that he had prepared, but he was not able to today. So I'm preaching today, and then he will finish his next week. And so what that did for me was that left me in a place where I was like, well, what do I want to do? Do I want to jump back into the First Samuel series? 
knowing we're going to take another immediate break? Or do I want to maybe preach something more topical? And I decided we can kind of do both. Because we've been doing this already. We've been working through 1 Samuel, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. But I have stopped to go down a couple important detours that I call speed bumps. And and these speed bumps that I speak of are details or elements in the text that are not really what the whole text is about. So to some degree, if we were to spend too much time on them, we would miss the overall point of the text. But they're so difficult and so distracting that I felt it would be good to separate some time to talk about these things so that they don't become a distraction when we go back and try to see the overall point. So it's kind of topical, but it's still also kind of on sermon series to a degree. And the first one we looked at was what I was calling divine violence. We looked at this difficult issue in 1 Samuel 15 where God commanded the Israelites to slaughter the Amalekites, including the babies, the infants, the women, and the children. And so we talked about this issue of divine violence. And then in 1 Samuel 15, we had another speed bump that we took some time to look at, and that was what I called divine repentance or divine regret, where we had the texts tell us that God regretted making Saul king, or he repented of making Saul king. And so we took some time to talk about how does a holy, all-knowing God who can't make mistakes regret things? How does he repent of things? And that was our second speed bump. But we have now hit a third speed bump, or at least in my mind. And the third speed bump that I think we've hit is what I'm calling divine deception. We looked at divine violence. We looked at divine uh, regret, divine repentance. And now we're going to look at divine deception. Does it not appear that God was telling a lie here? And if you say, no, he's not telling a lie, then maybe he's being deceptive. Let me remind us what has happened since we've taken a break. The last time we were in 1 Samuel, Saul was officially and finally rejected as king. God is done with Saul. He's still sitting on the throne, but in God's eyes, Saul is not the rightful king of Israel any longer. And so Samuel has been mourning this. Samuel loves Saul. Samuel's basically been a father to Saul. This is devastating for Samuel. And and we are told in Ecclesiastes that there is a time for mourning. So Samuel was permitted by God. He was allowed to grieve, to weep. But the time for mourning is over. God is a God of action. God is a God who is not panicked. And so he says, okay, Samuel, you've had enough time to cry. Enough is enough. I have picked a new king. Go get him. And Samuel says, Father, I am, I am happy to do this for you, but there's only one problem. Uh, you think Saul's going to be okay with that? You think Saul's just going to let me go off and anoint his predecessor? We've been given an insight into the true depravity that Saul's heart has fallen into. Saul is now so depraved and so far from God that Samuel is convinced he will kill me. And Samuel seems to be right, because God's response is not, come on, Samuel, grow up. Don't be so dramatic. He's not going to kill you. God seems to agree. Yeah, I know his heart better than he knows his heart. He's going to kill you. So how is the purposes of God going to be accomplished? How is Samuel going to anoint the new king if Saul won't let him happen? Well, God tells him, why don't you just tell him not the real reason you're there? Bring a heifer with you and just pretend like you're there to sacrifice. And then you can do a secret anointing under the cloak of sacrifice. Is God a God of deception? Isn't this a lie? Now, in most of the commentaries that I read, most of them were very, very quick to just dismiss it and act like this wasn't a tension or a problem because it's not technically a lie. You'll see in two weeks when we actually cover the chapter, he does do the sacrifice. The the sacrifice actually happens. So it's not a lie, right? He showed up saying, I'm here to do a sacrifice, and they did it. And so most commentators are happy to say, you know, see, there's no lie here. We're fine. But I would submit to you, I I don't think that's good enough. Let me just ask you this. we we, We don't want this to be a problem. We don't want this to be a tension. So that might sound like a good answer here. But would that be a good answer if your children did that to you? Imagine you have a high schooler who's leaving the house. Hey, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to the library. And then you find out that they actually went to their friend's house and went to a party. And then they came home and you said, hey, I found out you lied to me. You said you were going to the library. You went to a party. And they say, well, technically, I drove my car to the library, parked it there, and then my friend took me to my friend's house. So I didn't lie to you. I did go to the library. As a parent, would you? Oh, okay. Never mind. Or would you? No, no, you've lied to me. 
I know this is a technicality, but you were trying to deceive me. You, you led me on as if you were going to study, but you actually went to a party. This is not truthful. Would that be more like your response? So let me ask you this. In light of that, how do you interpret what God did here? Is this truthfulness? I would submit to you that it would technically meet the standards of perjury of court. If this was under oath, this would be perjury. Why do I say that? Because when you're under oath, at least the old-fashioned way, I don't know. Uh, uh, Mark went to law school, so maybe he knows a little bit more about how it all works out. <laughs> but I don't know if they still say this. But at least in the movies, they make a vow to tell the truth. But that's not all we vow, is it? Because telling the truth isn't enough. We've learned that the hard way. Humans can be very deceptive. So you also vow to tell nothing but the truth. Because you could theoretically vow to tell the truth, but mix it with a bunch of lies and ruin the story. So you vow, I'm going to tell the truth, and I will tell no lies. But we don't even stop there. What do we vow under oath to tell? The whole truth. Because you can tell the truth, but still be dishonest. Lead people on. So I would argue if God were under human court oath, this is perjury. This is not the whole truth. Oh, don't worry. I'm here for a sacrifice. And then he goes to anoint the king. Is this not deception? I would argue it is. This is deception. And so what is it that I think we learn from a God who's willing to engage in a kind of deception? Well, I think we learn the holy God who cannot sin, who cannot do evil, is now subtly teaching us that not all forms of deception are sinful. As I was preparing my sermon, I had a thought in mind. I was thinking, you know, every time I preach, generally speaking, I'm not worried that there's going to be pushback. Like, we as a church are largely speaking of the same mind, which is a good thing, that that's what churches actually should be going for. And so, you know, sometimes people have come up to me and said, oh, we're, we're so, we, we, we really admire your courage and the way you just preach the word. And, and I am flattered by that, and I, I appreciate that. But I just have to tell you, I, I really don't feel like it takes a lot of courage to stand in front of this congregation and say the things that I say. I know that, you know, I'm going to say a thing here or there that's going to disrupt, you know, Sally and John and et cetera, et cetera. But generally speaking, I, I feel like we're generally on the same page. This has been the first time in my two years here where I thought, you know what, I might have a mutiny on my hands. I'm not sure the church is going to like what I have to say. And so let me, before I break into some examples, let me just say, let me remind you of something that's true of every sermon, not just this sermon. I recognize I'm fallible. I recognize that I make mistakes and that every pastor in the country does. And so every sermon I preach, you need to listen to with a discerning mind. And so what I would submit to you today is if what I say rubs you the wrong way or if you don't like it, that's fine. But let me just ask this of you. Before you bring questions to me, which I gladly, please do, I would love that. Before you push back, just make sure you reckon with some of the texts that we're looking at. A lot of times I'll say things, not here, not in this context, but outside, I'll say things that people don't like and they immediately, so I disagree with that and I say, but okay, that's fine, but what do you do with the text that I brought? Like you need to tell me, if, if the text doesn't mean what I say it means, that's fine, but tell me what it does mean. So that's all I'm going to ask of you today. You might be offended by this. You might be bothered by this. But I'm just going to ask you to make sure you pray over the texts that we look at before you come to any judgments. But I readily grant and admit this is not going to be an easy sermon here. When you leave this place and someone asks you, hey, what you learn in church today? You can rightfully say, my pastor taught me how to lie. My pastor taught me how to lie. I'm making the argument that we see an example from God in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that there are some times when it is not only permissible, I'm going to argue appropriate to deceive someone. Or it is an appropriate, righteous, virtuous response to tell a lie. I think we see that here. I'm somewhat tempted to rest my case, but I think we have more extreme examples to help bolster this. So we're going to look at just a couple of those. There, there are, by the way, there are actually a lot. 
I don't have just one or two texts. There are a lot of examples in Scripture, but let's just look at some. Thankfully, I, my notes aren't working, but I have them remembered, thank, by the grace of God. I don't always do that. If you will turn to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 15. Let me set the context for you. Israel is enslaved to Egypt, and Israel is doing something that our church is doing, which is having a lot of babies. And so Israel is growing, and they're getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Hallelujah. Praise be to God. And so the Egyptians are panicked. Like, oh no, they're supposed to be our slaves, but pretty soon they're going to be stronger than us. Like, we, we got to rein this in. So the evil Pharaoh, he does a bunch of things to try to curtail this. He increases their slavery. He, he, he basically tortures them with slavery. But one of the things that he goes to do is he, he commands abortion be carried out among the Israel, Israelite people. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra and the other Pua. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. I'm making the argument that from this text, the Hebrew midwives lied, they told a lie. They have been commanded to change vocations. They were midwives, and they have now been commanded by their authorities to become abortion doctors. And they refuse. They fear God, and they know it's wrong to kill children. It's wrong to murder children. Abortion is sin, and they're not going to do it. So they refuse to kill these babies. But then when they are brought to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, Why did you disobey me? What would the truthful answer be according to the text? Because we fear God. That's the truthful answer. That's the text. The text tells us twice the reason they did this was because they feared God. They knew this was sinful. They knew this was wrong. And because they feared God more than they feared men, they obeyed God rather than men. But that's not the answer they give. We're trying to kill these babies. We just kill, you know, they just have them too fast. These women are just pushing them out, man. We're trying our best to kill these babies, but they're just, man, they're just way ahead of us. I have read commentaries where they've tried to say this is actually the truth. Yes, they feared God, but maybe this was also simultaneously taking place, and so this was the truth. And I say that's pure speculation. All the text tells us is that they didn't do it because they feared the Lord, but the reason they gave is that the women were having the babies before they got there. You know what I say? That's a lie. And you know what I say? Praise God for that lie. Now, here's the common argument. And this is very important. When we do Bible interpretation... We always have to be very careful of the prescriptive versus descriptive texts. What do I mean by that? Well, a prescription, right, like your doctor gives you a prescription, it's an authority telling you to do something. So we have in the Bible God telling us what to do, telling us what not to do. That's a prescription. The Ten Commandments is a prescriptive text. Do this, don't do this. That's prescription. There's danger in biblical interpretation when you're reading historical narrative is the author is not necessarily telling you what to do. He's just telling you what happened. Right? That's what we call description. He's not prescribing something for you. He's just describing what happened. Right? Back to our World War II analogy. If I were a historian and I wrote a history book on the rise of Adolf Hitler, that's not me saying, hey, Hitler did this, this, and this, so you should go do that. Right? I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not giving approval of it. I'm just saying this is what happened. And we have that. So we have to be careful when we read the Bible of seeing something happen and then determining, oh, I must do this. Right? Peter denied Jesus three times. Does the Bible teach that you need to deny Jesus three times? 
No. Peter did it, the Bible recorded it, that doesn't mean you should do it. So we have to ask the question, is this prescriptive or descriptive? The midwives did it, but does that mean you should? And here's why I think we should, because what did we read? How did God respond to this? He blessed them. Verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong, and he gave them families. I think God gave his stamp of approval to their behavior. Turn just a little bit further to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. Beginning at the very uh, beginning, but first, let us, let me again just kind of set the stage. So the book of Joshua is all about the Israelite people going into the promised land, right? Moses was punished, he was not allowed in, but now Joshua is leading him into the promised land. So they come to Jericho, and they send some spies in, because they want to see, like, we don't want to just go marching in there not knowing what to expect. So they send a couple Hebrew spies to kind of spy out the place and come back with a report. And the spies get into town, and somehow, we don't know, but word gets out amongst Jericho. And they know that the spies are there. As a matter of fact, they go to a prostitute's home by the name of Rahab. And they're spending time with Rahab. And somehow Jericho finds out about this. So they send what would be like their police force. They, they send a group of men to the prostitute's house, to Rahab's house, to say, give us the spies. Like they're here to destroy us, right? Bring them out to us so we can deal with them. And let's see how Rahab responds. Chapter 2, verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly for Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel, I have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. That's a lie. I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. That's a lie. I do not know where the men went. That's a lie. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. That's a lie. Rahab just told four lies to protect these men. She ends up, she hides them on the roof. She has this fa the famous passage, she ties this scarlet cord and they escape out the window while the men of Jericho run and get locked out of the gate. <laughs> it's hysterical, it's funny. She's a liar. Now, back to prescription versus description. Was this a good thing? What does God think of this? Turn to James chapter 2. You go past all of Paul's epistles and into the book of Hebrews, because we don't know if Paul wrote it or not. And then right after Hebrews is the book of James. James chapter 2. Now the passage we're going to read in James, unfortunately, has some very controversial elements of the doctrine of justification. Let me just say, this is not a sermon on justification. We don't have time to go down those rabbit trails. But again, if you have questions about justification, come in this week and let's talk about it. But let's begin at James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Rahab has been brought into communion with Abraham, the father of the faith, the man of faith. The book of Galatians talks about how Abraham's faith is the standard for the new covenant, for being saved by faith. And that we are all to be like Abraham, to be saved by faith. Abraham is the father of faith, and he is the epitome of the standard for Jewish people. And so it is very common for Jewish authors when they're making a point to use Abraham as their example. James does it here. Paul does it in Romans chapter 4. Very popular. So, so here Abraham has been brought up as this example. And what's the example? The example is that we are saved by faith alone. But as Martin Luther famously said, we are, we are saved by a faith that is not alone. There are different kinds of faith, and not every kind of faith saves you. It's only a working faith, a living faith, an active faith that saves you. And so a faith that has no works is a dead faith that can't save you. And he wants to prove this. Let me take Abraham. Everybody knows Abraham was saved by faith, but let me remind you what kind of faith Abraham had. And how do we know the kind of faith Abraham had? We can't see his heart. We don't know what's inside of his head. How do we know the kind of faith someone has? We show it. We justify it. We prove it. And how did Abraham, he did it in many ways, but what's the pinnacle of proof that Abraham truly loved God? He was willing to slaughter his son. My son is three weeks old, and so I have experienced for the first time in my life just how miserable and difficult that decision would be. The son of promise... He was told, go up there and stab him to death. And Abraham was willing. And James says, look, see, that is proof of his righteousness. It is proof of his faith. And then he says, let's give a Gentile example. Abraham is this great Jewish. Let's give a Gentile example. And who of all the Bible, the Old Testament, does he choose? Rahab. And he says, Rahab, like Abraham, proved the authenticity of her faith. She was justified by works when she did what? Lied. Correct, yes, there are many examples in Hebrews 11. Now, here's, let me just be very clear. I'm not trying to be myself deceiving here. I understand the text doesn't technically say in James 2 that it was the lie that she was justified for. It says she was justified when she sent the spies out the other way. And so many of the commentaries that I've read have suggested, see, the lie was wrong. It was just the sending the spies out away from the, from the bad guys, that that was what was good. And I'll just be honest with you, in my mind, I don't know how we can separate those two things. Maybe you can, I just can't. Right, like, she was justified, and he summarizes it by sending the messengers out the other way. But what does that mean? Like, we know the context. What that means is she lied and sent the spies one way, and then sent the messengers the other. I don't think we can divorce the two actions. It's the whole narrative that proved her faith. And so here we have deceptive Rahab being elevated to Abraham's level and saying, look at how much she loves God. She's willing to lie. <laughs> And like I said, I really could, we, we'll look at one more example near the end of the sermon, but we really could multiply examples of this. We have throughout the scriptures, the people of God being deceptive and being blessed for it. And so I really truly believe that there is a place in the Christian life for being deceptive. Now, here's the question that I hope is on your mind. How does this not run amok? <laughs> How do we possibly you know, bring this in? How do we rail this in? What's the standards that you have for railing this in? I mean, because now, doesn't it sound like your pastor's just giving you permission to just go out and tell as many lies as you want and say, oh, by the way, my pastor told me this is okay. Well, no. Uh, let me try to give you, uh, and, and this is probably something that will develop for a long time as we hone this in, but here's, I think, a good starting point. As I examine the text that we look at, here are three principles that we can look at for determining whether my dishonesty is pleasing to God or not. 
And the first one is that, and I'll try to give some real life examples after this, but let me just run through them. The first one is I believe deception is permissible when it's in an attempt to save innocent life. I believe deception is permissible in an attempt to save innocent life. In the three examples we looked at, that was the common denominator. Why was Samuel not completely truthful with the men of Benjamin? To save his life. And by the way, he didn't deserve to die. He was an innocent man. He was going to be put to death for doing something righteous. He was an innocent life. And God, in order to protect his life, told him to engage in some level of deception. Why did the midwives lie to Pharaoh? To save themselves and to save babies. The babies' lives were on the line and their lives were on the line and they're in the right. It was not okay for them to kill those children. And so to save their own innocent lives and to help continue saving the lives of the babies, they told a lie. That's our second example of saving innocent life. And again, Rahab, it's not as explicit. We're not told for sure the messengers are going to kill the spies. Or forgive me, that the that Jericho was going to kill the messengers, but I'm assuming life was not going to be pleasant for them once they got caught. She was protecting them. She was saving them. And so I would argue that deception is permissible. I think you could even say virtuous when it is the only way to save innocent life. I think maybe another example we could use is Samuel was not just trying to save his own life. He was trying to obey the commandments of God. God gave Samuel a direct commandment. You must go here and you must anoint this man. And so Samuel's deception was also so that he could carry out the plans of God. So I think that deception can be a righteous thing when you have a direct commandment from God and it's the only way that you can obey that commandment. I think that's a principle that we learned from the text. Let me give a couple of examples of and how that would look like in real life before I get to our third one and then we close. So to save innocent life, what might that look like? Well, that's the example I began with at the beginning. I can say, I'm not telling you you have to agree with me, but based on all of the examples that we have seen in the Old Testament so far, if I were a Christian in Germany hiding Jews and the Nazis came to my door, you want to know what I would say? Jews, no, I haven't seen any. Maybe, maybe check down there. None in here. And you say, that's a lie, Pastor Colin, you're lying. And I would say, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to be like Rahab. Rahab was justified by works when she sent the messengers out the other way. So I want to be justified by works when I send the Jews out the other way. I'm going to send the Nazis that way and I'm going to send the Jews that way. I feel like I have full permission from the book of James to do that. I'm trying to save their life. So those Nazis, what have they done? They've lost their right to the truth. There are some sins so serious, so grievous, that you lose your right to the truth. Everybody in this room has a right to the truth. But if you sin against God in certain horrible ways, you lose that right and you're not getting it from me. We deceive to save innocent lives. There's a modern example of this happening that's been very controversial in the Christian world. Now, this one, I'll admit, is not quite as black and white because it's more proactive and not as defensive as these lies have been. But I still think it's justified. How many of you have ever heard of David DeLayden? Anybody ever heard of David DeLayden? If you haven't, David DeLayden is a man who started a fake company. Well, it's a real company, but he lied about what that company was. He started a company that pretended to be an organization that buys fetal body parts from abortion facilities to test and study baby body parts. That's not what his organization does, but that's what they pretended to do. And so what they started doing is they started meeting with higher up Planned Parenthood officials and engaging in fake deliberations, signing contracts to purchase dead babies and study them. And we have on camera these women agreeing to it and proving to us that they've been doing it for a long time. Planned Parenthood, they are not just killing babies, they're selling their body parts. How do we know that? Because someone was willing to lie. He started a company and said, here's what my company does. That's not what they do. 
He says, here's my official job position, but that's not what his official job position is. And then he went to these meetings and says, here's what I'm interested. I would like one skull, two kneecaps, a male kidney, but he wasn't actually interested in that stuff. He was engaged in lying from start to finish. And by the way, this has gone to court and he's basically lost everything. And the reason he's lost is because it's a law that you're not allowed to, in the state of California, you cannot uh, record business conversations without the, without the other person's knowledge. So all of this has gone away. He's not going to win. He's lost. But he has revealed something to the church and to the American public that we needed to know. And he did it by lying. And thousands and thousands of Christians were debating all over Facebook. Uh, you know, I'm glad you know, that we learned this, but he shouldn't have done this. This is a lie. This is deceptive. This is not the tactics Christians should engage in. And I would say, I think he's just being like the midwives. I think he's trying to save babies. And I think it's appropriate to be deceptive when saving babies. And so I praise God for David DeLayton. I think he's a hero. Because I think that was righteous deception. It was the same kind of deception that God engaged in when he said, well, tell them, tell them you're there for the sacrifice, but we all know you ain't there for the sacrifice. That's what God did, not David DeLayden. There's this other example of when you have a particular commission, a command from God, that I think deception is permissible. I think we see that in 1 Samuel 15. Go anoint him. I'm going to have to kind of not tell the whole truth to get this done. God says, okay, yeah, go ahead. Here are a couple important modern examples of where that takes place. Everyone in this room had the wonderful privilege where you got to just wake up and come to church this morning. Isn't that a blessing? No one pulls you over and asks where you were going on a Sunday morning? None of us are fearful that the police are going to break through this door and imprison us right now, are we? Let me tell you something. This is not the case for many people around the world today. There are many people worshiping the Lord in secrecy because it's illegal. Let me ask you a question about our brothers and sisters in China who are maybe walking in the middle of the night to a secret underground church and they're stopped by a police official. Where are you going? What should they say? Just taking a stroll. I think they should lie. I think they should engage in some level of deception, and I think I have a biblical warrant for that. They have been commanded by God to meet, to edify the saints, to learn from His Word, to study with the people of God. And I think that if lying is the only way that they can carry out this command, then hallelujah, bring the deception on. Another one of my favorite examples are medical missionaries. There are many countries in the world that if you go to their doorstep and say, hey, I'm a Christian and I would like to come teach your people, teach your people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, would you let me in? How do you think things are going to go for you in Iran? Not going well. So how is it happening? You want to know how it's happening? Is we have many Christians who God has blessed with the ability to perform vital medical needs. And they go on these service trips and they go to these other countries to do dentist work or to provide medicine or to do surgeries or to, and they do all these things. And that's exactly like what we have in 1 Samuel 15. I'm just here to do some orthodontist work. Now let me tell this guy about Jesus. Medical missionaries all over the world are going into these countries because they're medical professionals. But every one of us know they have a secret agenda they are not telling the government right now. And you know what I say? Praise God. And you would say, well, that's not technically a lie. I know. But let me ask you, what if the government asked them? What if they showed up at the doorstep of Egypt, said, hey, we're here just to perform some, some surgical work. And the government says, okay, but before we let you in, let me just make sure. Let me, you're not here to do religious work, right? Now what do they do? Do they go home? No, I'm, I'm a dentist. I'm not a missionary. I'm a dentist. I think in that situation, that's permissible. There's, there's one other one, and this one's maybe will ruffle your feathers the most. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 20. So there is an evil king in Israel, Ahab, 
And he went to war with the Gentile nation. He captured the king of the Gentile nation. And he, was, he knew he was not to let that man go. But he strikes up a deal with him. They have a little bargain. And he lets him go anyway. And so one of the prophets is coming along and he wants to rebuke the king for not doing what he was supposed to do. And his method of rebuke is extremely interesting. Begin with me in verse 35. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, Strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. So the prophet goes to this random guy and says, I want you to punch me in the face. And the guy says, No. And we know that this is a true prophet because he says, okay, since you have not obeyed the Lord, you're going to die when you leave here. And it happens. All right, so we have a true prophet on our hand. This is not a false prophet. It's not a, this is a true prophet. 37, then he found another man and said, strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. So what does he do? He lies. He makes up a story. He says, I was fighting in the battle. He wasn't. And someone gave me a prisoner and said, If this guy gets... It gets out, you die, or you, you pay for it. And the guy got out. So now he's leaving it for the king to determine, well, what should we do with this guy? Verse 41, then he hurried to take the band, or forgive me, verse 40. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. So the king says, listen, it's pretty clear. You were supposed to hold him under penalty of death. He got out. You need to die. You've judged yourself. Verse 41, then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I have devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. So he told this temporary lie in order to get this man to self-indict himself. By the way, this is exactly what Nathan does to David in 2 Samuel. Remember after David's great sin, Nathan goes to confront him. And how does Nathan confront him? He makes up a story about a lost sheep. And David says, that's terrible. That man needs to be punished. And then, and then Nathan says those famous words, you are the man. <laughs> I'm talking about you. The prophets engage in this temporary disguise, this lie. I, I'm a soldier, psych, right? Is a temporary lie to prove a point. And so I think that it is occasionally appropriate for authorities to deceive if it's very temporary and it's for a teaching purpose. So here's what that might look like. This is halfway a true story, halfway a false story. I have a very bad habit of, when, of eating the treats that my wife buys for herself and leaves in the fridge when she doesn't finish them. I have a very bad habit. I don't know, maybe it's, uh, I'm trying to think of a joke, but I can't. It's a bad habit I need to stop. I need to stop. Yeah. And uh, so I want you to, to kick a scenario that has not happened, but let me just kick it to you. Let's say she brings home a box of Oreos and I eat all of them. And she's upset. And so a week later, I put something in the fridge. And we're sitting on the couch and I say, you know what, I'm really craving that sandwich I had. I'm going to go make the sandwich. And she says, oh, I ate it yesterday. And I turn around and go, honey, what were you thinking? How could you be so rude? Why would you do that to me? That is so disrespectful. And then she might say, okay, I didn't actually eat it. It's still there. But now you know your hypocrisy. I truly, if that happened, I don't think the Lord would be displeased with her. I really don't. I think that's the example we get from the prophets. So what do we have here? This is a form of deception, but it's intentionally temporary, right? Like the prophet was not trying to get away with some permanent lie. It was a temporary deception. The truth was right on the horizon and it was to make a point. So I think we can engage in that sometimes. Now, a couple clarifications. Uh, the prophets had a legitimate authority to be the instructors of the kings. I think that's relevant to this circumstance. So if you don't have the authority to be rebuking this person in the first place, you should not do this. So let me be very specific what I mean. All of the kids in here, uh, you do not have permission to lie like this to your parents. 
because it's their job to teach you. It's not your job to teach them. I would not encourage you in your place of work to treat your boss like this. But I think there are some times where the authorities are legitimate, where we can engage in a kind of deception, knowing the truth is right around the corner. And there's one other application here that I think applies. You might disagree with the way I'm applying this, but I really think this is why, as a pastor, I don't rebuke the church for what people call white lies. Right? Right? Say, say that someone, say Bill is throwing a surprise party for Polly. Her birthday's coming up and we're throwing a big surprise party. And so Bill goes out to buy a bunch of presents and decorations and Polly says, where are you going? Oh, I got to run to the grocery store. And it's not entirely true, right? Sometimes with surprise, we're trying to surprise people, we, we fib. Now you have to ask me, I've actually been engaged in a situation where someone asked me to do that. Hey, we're trying to surprise such and such when they get home. Will you tell them this so that when they get home, they're surprised? And I did it. And I didn't say, listen, I'm your pastor. I cannot allow you to break the commandments of the Lord like this. I think there's a principle here. We know that they are not trying to deceive or get away with a lie or have some ulterior... The truth is right around the corner. It's it's just a, a temporary thing for a greater purpose. And I think that's what we learn. So those are kind of the three ways we we bring this in. If it's not a temporary lie to tell the truth or surprise someone, if it's not to save innocent life or to obey a direct command from God, then it's a lie and you need to repent. And so first clarification, I am not trying to advocate for subjectivism here. I'm not trying to teach you what many people think that a lie, it depends on your intentions. You can have good intentions and it still be sin. So I don't hear me saying your intentions are all that matters. That's not what I'm saying. So clarification number one, I'm not arguing for subjectivism. I am trying to give us biblical objective parameters for this kind of deception. Uh, the number two clarification that I would want to make is that I am not saying that God doesn't take his word seriously. Like he told us not to lie, but he doesn't take that seriously. On the contrary, I think the examples we have here show just how serious God takes it. A great uh, example of this is the commandment not to kill. In the Greek language and in the English language, we have a grammatical distinction between killing and murdering. The Hebrews didn't have that. They just had one word. And they had to, based on the context, determine what it meant. So let me tell you their potential surprise when Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments and says, Thou shalt not kill. And then someone says, Well, what happens if I do? What do they do? We're going to kill you. God said, don't kill people. And then Moses says, what do we do? Kill them. Is that a contradiction? Do not kill, but if someone breaks that, kill. No, what is God saying? God is saying that you have a a right to life and no one's allowed to take that from you, but you can surrender it. God values innocent life so much that you lose your right to yours when you break that. So there is a distinction between murder and righteous killing. We also see this in self-defense laws. The book of Leviticus has self-defense laws. If someone breaks into your home, you defend yourself and they die, you are not going to be charged as a murderer. So not all killing is murder. And I'm arguing not all deception is bearing false witness. Does that make sense? And I think that these examples actually magnify just how seriously God takes his law. Truth is the most valuable commodity on the face of the earth. It is more important than gold and silver. Truth is the most valuable commodity on the face of the earth. And there are some sins that are so heinous to God, he will take that away from you. If you want to try to persecute the church of Christ, you will lose your right to the truth. So I'm not arguing for subjectivism. I'm not arguing that God doesn't take his word seriously. And lastly, I am certainly... I am not trying to argue, uh, forgive me, I'm trying to remember my third point with my PowerPoint did. I'm not arguing subjectivism. I'm not arguing, oh, this is not the lesser of two evils argument. That's not what I'm saying. I am not saying that it is wrong to deceive, but it's the lesser evil, so you should do that. Why? Because I'm arguing that God has engaged in this behavior. And God doesn't do any evil, right? When we say God is holy, we're not saying he abstains from all the big sins. We're saying there is no accusation possible you can bring against God. He has never sinned, but he has deceived. So I am not teaching you the lesser of two evils. The book of Corinthians says, in every temptation, God provides a way out. I don't even believe in the lesser of two evils. 
What happens if Jesus ever found himself in a lesser of two evils argument? What would he do? I don't believe it happens. I believe there's always a way out. So I am not saying that this is a smaller sin and it's okay to commit it. I'm saying it's not a sin. I've heard people say when asked about the, what would you do with the Jews? I've heard people say, well, I would tell a lie and I think that's wrong, but I would ask for forgiveness later because I think it's a lesser wrong than giving them up. And I'm saying, don't do that. (laughs) That's a bad reason to sin. Well, this sin is lesser than that one. I think that's a bad reason to sin. You want to know why? Because I don't think there is a good reason to sin. So I'm not telling you to commit small sins. I'm trying to show you where sometimes deception is not a sin. Well, we have gone very long. Let me just say this in conclusion. We won't turn there. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends his disciples. Well, he's about to send his disciples out. And he tells them something very interesting. He he tells them, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. That's a scary promise, isn't it? You're going to be a sheep, and I'm going to send you out into a world full of wolves. Well, that's scary, so what do we do? And so he immediately tells them, so first step, as you are sheep among wolves, is be innocent as doves. The dove was a symbol of purity and innocence. So he is telling us, as we as a Christian church are sheep among wolves, our first job is to be holy. Being holy is so important to the Great Commission. Being holy is so important to our mission. We need to be pure and holy as doves. But guess what Jesus tells them is the contrary to that? Be innocent as doves, as doves, but as wise as a serpent. As shrewd as a serpent. That has always blown me away. You want to know why? Because the serpent throughout Scripture is always a bad guy. The serpent always symbolizes evil. And Jesus is here saying, hey, there's something good to the serpent. And you need to bring this into the Great Commission. You're as holy as a dove, but you're as wise as a serpent. What what does the serpent represent? He doesn't represent brilliance in an academic sense. Right? Like we wouldn't say uh, Albert Einstein was as brilliant as a snake. That doesn't make sense. But there is a wisdom, but it's a cunning wisdom. It's a schemy wisdom. It's a sneaky wisdom. So Jesus is telling us, be holy, be pure, don't sin. But you need to get creative. You need to be cunning. You need to be sneaky. You need to do things. You need to have tact and game plan. Right? So he's not sending us as these pious people who just float around. I am holy. Kill me if you want. That's not good for the Great Commission. We need a little bit more creativity than that. We need a little bit more cunning than that. So be as wise as doves. But be as shrewd as the serpent. I would say this. You want to know what we have been called to as the Great Commission? I bring this in so you know this isn't just an academic exercise. Like, oh, hey, my pastor talked about righteous deception versus lying today. But it has a direct impact on our lives because this is an important principle in carrying out the Great Commission. We need to be innocent as doves, but as shrewd as the serpent. What am I telling you? The Great Commission is a calling to a holy mischief. We have been called to a holy mischief. And sometimes we never sin, we're always righteous, we always pursue holiness, but sometimes it's okay to outthink the enemy. Sometimes it's okay to be one step ahead of our enemies. Be innocent as doves, but as wise as the serpent. 